0: It's the Media buzz meter with Howard Kurtz. For the first time in months yesterday, I had to do a TV appearance from my home office. I mean, this was my life for a year and a half during the height of the pandemic, where, you know, basically, except when I was doing Media Buzz on Sundays in my basement, and I had all the equipment, and a tech guy would come, and it kind of, you know, looked pretty professional, given the fact that, it's, you know, it's one robot camera and not in a well-lit, gorgeous studio as we have today. Uh, But during the week, uh, basically I have an app on my iPhone and I got to set up the camera and, you know, I made it work. But I had forgotten how much work it is and how many things that can go wrong. I mean, the reason I did this, I was on with Neil Cavuto on his Fox Business show, is that uh, somebody his staff decided they wanted me uh, in less than an hour. I was working at home. I didn't have time to get down to the studio. So this is a great you know the technology is fabulous in that you can kind of go live from anywhere and it looks pretty good but I mean, first of all I got to do my own makeup uh, got to put on grown-up clothes or at least anchor type clothes <laughs> at least from the waist up um, got I've got a little stand for the camera but it's kind of wobbly and you got to put the, the phone in and you got to make sure that everything looks right uh, I had a bunch of stuff on my desk like you know a bottle of Advil okay we don't want that in the shot uh, I do have um, some, a big television light that I turn on. You've got to adjust it so you're not too bright, you're not too dim. i got to turn, put all the shades down. i got to bring in a different chair. I'm going on and on and on. I forgot to turn the overhead lights off, which you're supposed to do. And then I've got to dial in, and i got to have an earpiece, so what we do not to have the ugly uh, headphones is use the uh, uh, Apple iPods, EarPods. AirPods, excuse me. I told you it's been a while. Great for music, by the way. Um, and then during the interview the sound kind of moved from the airpod to the phone this other phone that i have and i didn't like was kind of turn the volume down so it wouldn't create an echo and it just there's so many things that can go wrong you got to get the skype set up Or something called live view, and they got to make sure you can, they can, you can see, they can see you. And oftentimes a producer will say to me, you got to move to your left or your right. And I can't move to my left because there's a desk there. It just is a crapshoot. But everybody gets to see where, where you live and where you work. And look, we all took a great, uh, had a great voyeuristic interest in that. Oh, wow, that guy has a really nice oh You're kidding me with that plant? Oh, and I have to decide if I'm going to put out my little uh, White House made of Legos or my little Capitol made of Legos, or if it wasn't quite political, I would put out a plant. And these are very difficult, high level editorial decisions. Anyway, it all went fine and I was happy uh, to join Neil. I'm not going to say that the uh, arena in Los Angeles where they play basketball and hockey, and I guess have some concerts, the Staples Center has such a lovely name. It is, after all, named after an office supply company. But the new name, this was announced, I just saw this this morning, the Crypto.com Arena. First of all, doesn't exactly roll off the tongue. Second of all, at least with Staples, remember in the old days when it would just be like Yankee Stadium or Dodger Stadium and you didn't have all these corporate sponsorships. Uh, anyway, at least with Staples, I know everything that's sold in Staples, whether it's Staples or Scotch Tape or paper or binders or pens or whatever. I understand how it works. I don't understand cryptocurrency. I will probably never understand cryptocurrency. And yet, if I'm out there in LA, I would go to the crypto.com arena. Hey, Kirsten uh, Cinema has broken a long silence in the sense that she basically doesn't talk to the press. Gave about a half-hour interview uh, to Politico, uh, was naturally asked about her role along with Joe Manchin and not wanting to go along with much of the very expensive Biden and uh, progressive agenda. And she didn't make much news. I mean, she said things like, I've been concerned that the push. that happens at both parties, the push to have no disagreements, to only have unity, only speak with one voice. And some will say that's our strength. Having some disagreement is normal. It's real. It's human, Senator Cinema says. An opportunity for us as mature beings to work through it. So she sounded like somebody who has it together. But the most interesting thing was, you know, there's a lot of chatter about her clothes, and she wore a denim jacket on the Senate floor. You're not supposed to do that. You know, life is too short. She says it's very inappropriate to focus on her wardrobe. I wear what I want because I like it. It's not a news story, and it's no one's business. It's not helpful to have it be p- positive or negative. It also implies that somehow women are dressing for someone else. And I totally agree with that. I mean, look, she wears something really flashy and somebody mentions it in a story. I don't think that's libel. but this whole sort of chatter about it. Anyway, uh, the virtual summit between President Biden and President Xi, basically a three-hour video call, has produced its first results. It's not about the, the trade war, or intellectual property, or COVID-19 or climate, it's about the media. Uh, The two countries agreeing that uh, to lift restrictions on journalists. Basically, what happened is early this year, uh, China got ticked off, kicked out a bunch of correspondents for major news organizations and then said only journalists can only come in with short-term visas. And if you leave, you can't come back. Uh, And therefore, there haven't been any new visas approved for media people uh, by Beijing. So I don't know, they went several rounds and now accredited journalists can go in and out of both countries. I guess the U.S. had to retaliate uh, when China pulled that one. Um, Interesting twist in Jonathan Carl's book, Betrayal, it's got a lot of news in there that he breaks, having to do with those final two weeks of the Trump administration when it has been reported before and denied before that certain members of the Trump cabinet at least talked among themselves about invoking the 25th Amendment. So as a reporter, Carl was on the air yesterday, and he says, you know, uh, he had repeatedly for months working on this book called uh, spokespeople for Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State. They would not comment. They would not comment. They would not comment. And then when he went to Mar-a-Lago one last time for the final interview with Donald Trump, who spoke to John and Carl quite a lot, Uh, and asked him about this 25th Amendment business, which Trump insists is not true, though he wouldn't necessarily know. Suddenly, Carl gets a phone call from a spokesperson for Pompeo who denied the story, but wouldn't let Carl use his name. And Carl said they knew it was a lie. Mnuchin hasn't denied anything, but Pompeo denied simply because he got a call from Mar-a-Lago. That's the latest on that. Let's get to story number one, which is the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. Because it's kind of amazing to me, you know, for most of the week-long proceedings, I mean, there were stories in the papers and so forth, but it wasn't until the day when he was on the stand, when all the cable news networks took it live, when he started crying, when he described, and many of us heard for the first time in his own words uh, how it was that in Kenosha he shot three people, two of them died, one of them was wounded. Now, everybody's got a box up. Rittenhouse jury deliberates. Uh, The Rittenhouse jury has been deliberating for uh, all of one day in this homicide case. And already it's like, well, why can't they reach a verdict? It's so obvious, okay, on all sides. Well, David French has a piece in The Atlantic. And David French is a conservative guy. And he says that Kyle Rittenhouse is no hero, you know, but may well deserve to be acquitted. I think it's an interesting take because I've talked. You've heard me talk on the podcast before, and we did this on Media Buzz, um, how the media just completely and totally vilified him, called him a white supremacist, called him a murderer, convicted him in the press uh, without bothering to wait for the nicety of a fair trial. Um, And so here's what David French says, that the testimony shows a confused and isolated 70-year-old carrying an adult weapon in a dangerous place. It also shows that he was chased by his first victim, and attacked with a skateboard by his second victim, and then he shot and wounded his third victim when he, the other guy, uh, Grosskreutz, pulled out his own handgun. Rittenhouse has presented a considerable amount of evidence that he was not a hunter, but instead felt himself hunted, and fired solely on men who he believed presented a direct threat. Okay, but that brings us to the danger of Kyle Rittenhouse as a folk hero It's one thing to argue the law is on Rittenhouse's side, and there is abundant evidence supporting his defense, says David French. But it's quite another to hail him as a model for civic resistance, uh, as seen in Kenosha and in anti-lockdown protests in Washington State, the riot in Charlottesville and so forth. One of the symbols, he writes, of the American hard right is the, quote, patriot openly carrying an AR-15 or similar weapon. The gun picture is a common pose for populist politicians. Um, He talks about that couple in St. Louis, Mark and Patricia McCloskey, you know, standing on their porch uh, with the weapons. Uh, Rittenhouse is the next step in that progression. He's the patriot, air quotes, who didn't just carry his rifle, he used it. Now, French goes on to say, for those of you who might be of a different political persuasion, I am a longtime supporter of gun rights and believe that the Second Amendment's guarantee of a right to keep and bear arms is grounded in an inherent right of self-defense, both inside and outside the home. As a person who's been threatened more than once, I exercise those rights myself. So this is not some anti-Second Amendment, uh, anti-gun nut. But there is an immense difference between quiet, concealed carry and vigilante open carry, including in ham-handed and amateurish attempts to accomplish one of the most difficult tasks in all of policing imposing order in the face of civil unrest. And there's a dramatic use, a dramatic difference, excuse me, between the use of weapons as a last resort when your life or the lives of others are in immediate danger and the opening carrying of weapons as an intimidation tactic or as an intentionally disconcerting display of political identity and defiance. He goes on to say that... uh, Many of the right-wing leaders and pundits voicing their admiration for Kyle Rittenhouse are adopting a pose. They would never hand a rifle to their own children and tell them to walk into a riot. They would never do it themselves. I just think it's an interesting perspective because I've also said, look, what Kyle Rittenhouse did was dumb. I'm not talking about the self-defense part. Seventeen-year-old guy, lives in Illinois, decides he's going to go Uh, onto the streets of Kenosha where there's obviously violence, you know, several nights. And this was after the shooting and partial paralysis of Jacob Blake. And I just saw a piece today saying that while all this is going on, Jacob Blake, who's 30 years old, is, you know, in intensive rehab trying to be able to walk again. His goal is to be able to walk again by next summer. Uh, He's sort of the forgotten victim here. And, and, you know, he was no angel. I don't want to go back yeah, into all that, but he was shot repeatedly in a car. He had a knife. He had a record. There were kids in the car. Um, my point is you would think if there was going to be a racially charged trial in Kenosha, Wisconsin, it would be about for the police officer who shot Jacob Blake. But instead it's Kyle Rittenhouse, and it's not really racial, despite what, what some people say about him, because he is white, and all three men he shot are white, and yet you get this, you know, he's a white supremacist and so forth. All right, number two. I'm sorry to say the numbers for coronavirus are creeping back up. The average number of daily cases had gotten down to about 70,000, still a lot, but less than half of what it had been during the height of the Delta surge. Now it's crept back up to 85,000 cases. There are certain parts of the country that are experiencing a bit of a surge. Which brings me to this New York Times uh, piece. The Food and Drug Administration is aiming to authorize booster doses of Pfizer's vaccine for all adults as early as tomorrow. A move that would expand the number of Americans eligible for additional shots by tens of millions, according to sources. That's what President Biden said he wanted. That when the booster shots uh, were approved, that anybody over 18, I don't know why it's not 16, um, could get it if six months had passed. Since they got either Pfizer or Moderna, or I think that's a couple of months since they got Johnson and Johnson, Um, and I personally think that's the right stance. But here's an interesting piece in the Washington Post: While officially, at least according to the CDC, federal officials continue to limit who can receive receive a coronavirus booster shot, a growing number of governors from both political parties and other officials are circumventing that guidance to offer boosters to anyone over eighteen in hopes of staving off a spike in cases over the holidays. California made the first move when public health officials in that state sent a letter to local health authorities uh, saying that uh, as of a couple of weeks ago, uh, patients could decide for themselves whether to go out and see a Caboose shot. Within days, Colorado, New Mexico, Arkansas, West Virginia, New York City. Endorse boosters for all adults and more jurisdictions expected to follow. Here's the governor of New Jersey, Phil Murphy. If you're in doubt and you meet the waiting period, just get a booster. Choose the side of greater protection. With holidays coming up, we need as many people boosted as possible. It's that simple. And I I just think this is a no-brainer. We have the shots. We've got a lot of people who want the extra protection. There is scientific evidence showing that it's not that vaccines don't work. They work tremendously well. And if you get vaccinated and you do get happen to get COVID and one of these breakthrough infections, you know, you the chances are 99 plus percent you don't die or you don't have to go into the hospital. But the, the counter argument is, oh, this is going to, you know, impede efforts to reach the unvaccinated because they will think it's not so effective. You know what? We've been trying for months and months and months to get more unvaccinated people in this country to get the shot. And there's about a half million people who are, for the first time, are getting these shots, uh, as I see from uh, administration figures. But we can't uh, hold up the entire country to try to persuade every last one. Some people, for various reasons, just don't want these shots. But for the people who do and want maximum protection, and there's not a, a real safety question here, Why wouldn't you allow them to get a booster? It just doesn't make any sense. And by the way, if you want it today, and if you're not one of the states I rattled off, you can get it. There are a lot of exceptions built into this. There's an admirable exception for mental health issues, also for obesity, pre-existing conditions, you have immunization problems. I, 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 I know people who have gotten it, no questions asked. You're not asked to justify why you need it as long as you can show that you're over 18 and that you had, if you had Pfizer or Moderna, that you had it at least six months ago. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. I want to move on now to number three and inflation. You'll notice that inflation is suddenly a very hot topic. I've made the case that inflation was the sleeper issue. Well, we were all focused on the big legislation that Biden wants to pass. And by the way, he's out this week, you know, touting different provisions of uh, the infrastructure bill. And look, it's that's Politics 101, you passed a bill, you got to go out and tell people what's in it. There's already been one Republican member of Congress who voted against it who's touting it. Okay, nobody who voted against this, except for the 13 House Republicans, um, gets to brag about the benefits in their city, town, or state. You didn't want it to become law. So obviously there'll be a little bit of a hypocrisy watch there. But in any event, uh, with the president going out and trying to talk about, and he's talked about inflation a little bit, but, you know, the White House has kind of quietly moved from it's temporary, it's not really going to have much impact to, well, it's going to be around till next year. and We've got these supply chain problems. But anyway, I, I think that most journalists just weren't that sensitive to it because, you know, inflation ebbs and flows but not to the level of 6% a year, which is not exactly what it was uh, during the end of Jimmy Carter's term, but is certainly much higher. And if you get a raise of 4% and prices are up 6%, you're losing ground. That's assuming you get a raise at all. But I just think most journalists, you know, live in the big cities, paid very nice salaries. I'm not just talking about TV anchors here, you know, newspaper reporters on big city papers. Uh, they're doing okay. And if they go to the gas station and the price of a gallon of gas has jumped from 350 to 450, you know, they might, might grimace a little bit, but they're not going to really affect them. And I think they didn't, I think they totally underestimated uh, for families who are barely keeping their heads above water, how big a deal inflation is. So along comes today, Steve Ratner. Steve Ratner uh, was a reporter for the New York Times like four decades ago. He's a big venture capital guy here in Washington. Nice guy, I've met him. A lot of people know him because he's the economics guru for Morning Joe on MSNBC. And uh, he often comes in with charts and, you know, he knows what he's talking about. He's a liberal Democrat. He's a liberal Democrat who was picked by Barack Obama to serve as the car czar to oversee the auto bailout in the first year of the Obama administration. So he's not some... He's not even, you know, um, a conservative Democrat. He's a liberal Democrat who worked for Barack Obama. He has a piece in the New York Times today, the headline of which is, I tried to warn the Democrats about inflation. Uh, Ratner writes, "Uh, while not likely to morph into the double-digit inflation I covered for the New York Times four decades ago, prices may well rise fast enough to trigger higher interest rates. Higher financing costs make it more expensive for consumers and businesses to borrow, which in turn throttles growth. In other words, there's a kind of a cascading effect that could really hurt the economy beyond just the fact that things cost more. Inflation had already been tagged as a factor in the Democrats' awful election results this month, says Ratner. Uh, It also threatens the passage of the president's uh, Build Back Better plan, which includes expensive new initiatives. And he asked this question. Remember, this is kind of like friendly fire. This is coming from a guy who couldn't stand Donald Trump, loved Barack Obama, and has generally been supportive of Joe Biden. Here's the sentence. How could an administration loaded with savvy political and economic hands have gotten this critical issue so wrong? I asked myself that question too. You know, these are smart people with a whole lot of experience. Uh, Ratna goes on to say they can't say they weren't warned, notably by Larry Summers, former Treasury Secretary, and my former boss in the Obama administration, and less notably by many others, including me. We worried that shoveling an unprecedented amount of spending into an economy already on the road to recovery, from the depths, obviously, of COVID-19, would mean too much money chasing too few goods, which I seem to remember from my high school days is the classic definition of how inflation was cost. Has caused. It's clear to me that the pressure on the White House, says Ratner, particularly from progressives, to move forcefully was intense. Even most pessimists, me included, missed the pressing problem. This is the supply chain bottlenecks. So, Ratner's advice, the administration should come clean with voters about the impact of its spending plans on inflation. Build Back Better can only be deemed paid for if, it embraces, if one embraces budget gimmicks like assuming that some of the most important initiatives will be allowed to expire in just a few years. This is a classic beltway tactic. You know damn well that some future Congress is not gonna take away a benefit that's been enshrined in law, look at Obamacare. So you just you zero it out after five years and therefore you don't have to count the next five years in your 10 year results. The result, a package that front loads spending while tax revenues arrive only over a decade. Uh, that's a pretty tough, you know, for an economist, That's pretty tough language. That was fighting words. And good for Steve Ratner for being candid and calling it as he sees it, even though uh, he's basically pretty bluntly criticizing a president that he supports. All right, number four. I don't want to make too much of this, but it's a story about NPR deleting a tweet yesterday uh, and a lot of the headlines said it has to do with the recent mayoral election in Boston. It has to do with a tweet saying that there was disappointment, that was the word from NPR, uh, in the city of Boston about the election of the first Asian mayor. And my first reaction was, wait a minute, we just had the election a couple weeks ago. She hasn't even taken office yet. She can't have screwed up anything that badly. What do you mean there's disappointment? Well, here's what the tweet actually said. Michelle Wu an Asian-American, is the first woman and first person of color elected to lead the city. While many are hailing it as a turning point, others see it as more of a disappointment that the three black candidates couldn't even come close. So that does put it in a slightly different light, but it, it just seems like such a woke thing to say. I mean, first of all, the first woman... To be the mayor to be elected mayor of Boston. Second of all, the first minority to be elected mayor of Boston after centuries of white mayors. So that in and of itself, if you care about things like diversity, should be a pretty big step, right? But there were three black candidates running, and, and I'm not saying you know, it wouldn't have been a good thing for Boston after all these years. I remember when David Dinkins was the first black mayor uh, elected in New York City uh, in 1989, I covered that race. Uh, I remember when other cities got their first black mayors, Harold Washington in Chicago, and you can go on and on. Boston, not so much. But if the voters wanted Michelle Wu, you know, it's not a tweet that says, well, we got another Irish white guy. All right, so the tweet was taken down, and it was rewritten. And the, the revised version were, many were hopeful Boston would finally elect its first black mayor, as most of the nation's 30 largest cities have already done. Black activists and political strategists will reflect on what they can learn from the 2021 campaign season. Okay, taking out the offensive language. And um, NPR did say this. We realize we don't always get things right the first time, and our previous tweet/slash headline misrepresented the story. We deleted the previous tweet, which was causing harm, and have updated the story. Well, good for NPR for admitting it screwed up. And look, one of the reasons I hesitate to go ballistic here is, you know, you know, a lot of times these tweets are written by some 21-year-old kid. Uh, who's been working there two weeks. But, you know, in this age of social media and things going viral, things that are tweeted are as important, as important as what's in the story itself. It's like saying, well, it's a bad headline. It's really inflammatory, but the story was okay. Well, a lot of people just see the headline. And these days, a lot of people just see the tweet. And even if you've also seen the story, a lot of people see the tweet and other people see the tweet and they uh, retweet it, and suddenly the whole world knows about it. So that's a pretty bad screw-up. All right, number five, uh, going back to the awful, terrible tragedy that happened on the set of Rust, the Alec Baldwin movie. Um, And, of course, there's an investigation going on. So a couple of developments. Um, Alec Baldwin's brother, Daniel Baldwin, uh, has spoken out about the shooting. And he makes some interesting points in his brother's defense. He did this uh, on a radio show. He said his brother was taking the blunt of the criticism due to his political views, and that his a list fame makes him an easy target. Here are some of the quotes from Daniel Baldwin. You know, Alec's got the name though, doesn't he? So let's go ahead and take Alec for his political views and the many, many wonderful things he's done for many for different charities and people and his wife, and let's see if we can't sensationalize this and go after Alec. That is what he faces because he's opinionated and he's strong headed and he has really staunch views on certain things, and those people who don't like him will take advantage of him and persecute his wife. He's a target. I think it's a reasonable point because, you know, this is the guy who played Trump on SNL. This is the guy who's, you know, very, very outspoken liberal. And of course that should have nothing to do with, I mean, look, he is obviously devastated over the fact that he pulled the trigger and killed his director of cinematography, Helena Hutchins. Um, that will be with him for the rest of his life. I'm not letting him off the hook entirely. There's an investigation. He was a producer on the film. Obviously, corners were cut. Obviously, the people were hired to police gun safety there, did not do their job. But if the question is, are people piling on Alec Bola because he's famous, liberal, opinionated, and, you know, has been shown in the past to have a real temper, you know, yelling at the paparazzi and so forth? I think the answer is yes. But here's the other side coming from George Clooney on a podcast. This is Mark Marin's WTF podcast. By the way, you notice how more and more news is being made on podcasts? I think that's not just a reflection of their growing popularity, but I think that in these longer form interviews that you can do on podcasts and people maybe are more relaxed on podcasts than they are in a five or six minute morning show interview they tend to open up and be more blunt and i think that's great uh, you know i love podcasts and uh um i'm glad to be part of the podcast wave anyway george clooney veteran actor to say the least says on this podcast he is very critical he says why for the life of me this low-budget film with producers who haven't produced anything wouldn't have hired for the armorer someone with experience. They weren't even using that gun to do target practice, and that is insane, says Clooney. Um, And Clooney recalled that he was close friends with Brandon Lee. This is the son of Bruce Lee, who was accidentally shot and killed on a movie set back in 1993. So Clooney has felt this personally, somebody in his life, dying from what should have been a preventable movie set tragedy and here is history repeating itself. After Brandon died, it really became a very clear thing. Open the gun, look down the barrel, look in the cylinder, make sure. It's a series of tragedies, but you know, a lot of stupid mistakes. Um, And he talked about his own safety practices on the set and he's worked with weapons a whole bunch of times in different movies that he's done. And Clooney says, I open it, I show it to the person I'm pointing it to. I show it to the crew. Everybody knows. And maybe Alec did that. Hopefully he did do that. But the problem is dummies are tricky because they look like real bullets. And it just underscores from somebody who has so much experience in the business of making movies how not just tragic these mistakes were, but really I think how reckless. And I think people need to be held accountable. Now, if Alec Baldwin... Is found to have been negligent, then he'll be held accountable. But I think he relied on the judgment of others, as actors do. But Clooney is saying, even if you're the actor, here's what I always do: I open it, I look inside, I show it, I point it, show it to the person I'm pointing it at. I mean, I think this has be- this has become such an awful thing that it's going to it's going to change the way movies are made. Any movie that involves any kind of gun or any kind of shooting, uh, I think, uh, and it's about time. It's about time this was made safer. We can't be risking lives just for the sake of making movies. Hey, speaking of podcasts, uh, hey, if you want to subscribe, you know where to get it. But Apple iTunes is a good place. Always appreciate your tuning in or clicking on or whatever the proper terminology is. We'll see you tomorrow with more BuzzFeed.